you've got your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be finishing up this morning in, uh, in this, this chapter in a letter that's taken us so far all the way through this year to get through. We're taking it verse by verse, section by section, from the beginning of January, and take us all the way through around Thanksgiving. If you're here with us for the first time today and you've not been part of this series so far, then you're going to get to hear uh, us spend some time thinking about what has been called the harshest warning in all of the New Testament. So welcome to Trinity. We're glad to have you with us. The harshest warning in all the New Testament. This warning, though, isn't anywhere close to hellfire and brimstone fear-mongering that you might associate with warnings. It's a warning written by a pastor to his friends for their encouragement. It's written as an act of love rooted in the understanding that these words and whether we commit to them and own them, embrace them, is the difference between life and death. And if those are the stakes, then the most loving thing you can do is to speak this truth clearly and directly. That's what lies behind the warning we're going to be looking at today. What we've looked at the past few weeks, if you're here for the first time this morning, is a series of three commands or instructions that this author has given to his friends. He's told them because Jesus is who the whole letter has been picturing him to be, because he is the perfect priest who, whose power is unmatched, whose sacrifice is perfect, who has made a way to come to God and receive all the resources that God has to offer. Because Jesus is who he is, then first you've got to draw near to God through him. You've got to claim the resource that he offers you. Then you've got to hold on to your confession of faith because if you don't hold on, those resources aren't yours anymore. You've got to hold on because he's faithful. He will do what he said he would do, so hold on. That's number two. And then last week we saw the third command was to keep on meeting together because we're not going to hold on. We're not even going to regularly draw near to God's presence unless we have each other to constantly point us back to that, to remind us that God is faithful, that he will do what he said he would do, that he, if we come to him, he won't cast us out, and that he is all that we need. If we don't have that reminder from meeting together regularly, from speaking encouragement to each other without fear, without holding back, then we won't be able to hold on. And one way to see all three of those commands because they're all presented as things you got to keep on doing, you got to hold out doing, keep on drawing near, keep on holding on, keep on meeting together. I think if you bundle them all together, what they are is a call to endure. This is what Christian faith and practice looks like. Keep doing it. The passage we're looking at this morning gives us the reason that we've got to hold on, that we've got to keep on enduring. Because if we don't, the stakes are life and death, right? passage this morning begins with four, which always says, okay, now we're about to get the reason that, that he gave us the instructions he's just given us. And where it goes in, in two different paragraphs, the end of the chapter, is a two ways to go kind of picture. He draws for us a two ways to live and end kind of picture. There's an end that is judgment and an end that is life. He tries to give us a good sense of what it would look like to go in either direction. The way I'm choosing to build it this morning is to see this first paragraph as the stakes of endurance. So here's what's at stake in the call to hold on, to draw near, to 
meet together regularly that we've just been looking at. Here's, here's why that matters so much. And then the second paragraph gives us the shape of endurance. Okay, here's what it would look like for you to have a faith that holds on. Here's the essence of that faith. That's the two paragraphs we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, if you've found the passage, Hebrews chapter 10, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read? I'm going to read from verse 26 all the way to the end of the chapter at verse 39. This is the word of the Lord. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to start by giving ourselves a really good long look at this warning, what we're calling the stakes of endurance, or why the three things we've been told to do earlier this month are so important to keep doing. I think the way, that, the way to, to unpack this warning is with a few questions. I think we want to ask first, what is the warning? I want to make sure we got a good sense of what the passage is saying on the surface of it. What's the warning? Then I want to ask a couple deeper questions. Who is the warning for? And how are we meant to use it? What are we meant to do with this warning? Now, by far, I think the longest and the most detailed and maybe technical of the three is going to be this first one. This passage is admittedly tricky. Um, it's got... It's got some pitfalls in it, and it's got some weirdness to it that we're going to have to think long and hard about to really understand. So, so this morning, the plan is to get more technical, a little more detailed on this section than we normally would. I think, that, I think it'll prove really fruitful for us. I'm going to just give you that word up front so you can, you can hold on for this first section, and then I'm going to sum it back up for us and, and drive it in at the end. But we want to make sure we got a good sense of what this warning actually is because it's tricky and maybe a little confusing. On the surface of it, here it is. Let me tell you what it is, and then I'm going to show you how we get there. 
basically the warning is this. To reject what God offers is to reject God himself. And to reject God himself is to get what all God's enemies get. And that is absolute judgment. To reject what God offers you is to reject God. To make a statement about him. And to make that statement about God is to make yourself an enemy of God. And to get what enemies of God will always get. Absolute judgment. It's that simple. I'm going to show you how we get there. The two paragraphs, or the two sections in this first paragraph are verses 26 and 27. That's section 1. And then verse 28 and 29. In verses 26 and 27, what we get is a pretty straightforward statement of the warning itself. And then in verses 28 and 29, what we get is kind of an, uh, an illustration or an example of why the warning is the way that it is. It's one of these, if this thing was true that you already accept as true, then how much more will this thing I'm telling you now be true? So the statement of the warning in verses 26 and 27 is, is pretty straightforward. It's basically what I've already summarized for you. I think the only thing we've got to understand that isn't immediately clear is what it is to go on sinning deliberately. That's what verse 26 says. The people who are guilty are described as those who go on sinning deliberately. Those are the ones who are going to receive judgment, the the fury of fire that verse 27 talks about. So what is it to sin deliberately, and how can we avoid it? That's that's, That's the burning question. I think most, most agree that, that this reference to sinning deliberately is an allusion to a passage in the Old Testament, to a section of the law of Moses, where there's this distinction between people who do things unintentionally, break the law unintentionally, they, they slip up, they didn't mean to, it was an accident, but they broke the law, or who did so in ignorance. like They maybe just didn't know about the law, or they didn't know that the thing they were doing would actually break the law. Those are, those are, are one category of sinners, and they have punishments there that are different from another category, which is defiant sinners, those who understand the law, they get it, they know what it is to, do, to, to, to obey or disobey, and they choose disobedience anyway, deliberately. They go after it. Those, Numbers chapter 15 says, are the ones who must die. What they're guilty of, Numbers 15 says, is not just breaking a random law, What Numbers 15 says is that they're guilty of blasphemy. That's the essence of their sin. By sinning defiantly, knowing what God wants, choosing not to do it, they're guilty of blasphemy. Do you see the importance there? What they're guilty of is slandering God's name. I think normally when we think about don't take the Lord's name in vain, that command against blasphemy in the Ten Commandments, we we think about maybe using the word God inappropriately, just sort of throwing it around loosely as if it's not important. Or, or uh, famously, Jewish scholars and interpreters of the Old Testament won't use the word Yahweh because they're afraid of using that Yahweh name inappropriately. So they leave it out and swap it out for another word. But actually, I think the deeper meaning behind taking the Lord's name in vain is giving a false description of him. Basically, saying he isn't who he claims to be. It's to slander him by disputing how he's described himself. And by sinning deliberately, by knowing God has said this thing is not good for you, but doing it anyway, what you're saying is that God either doesn't know what's best, or he doesn't really care, or 
Maybe he's just one of several options, and I'm going to choose another one. You're guilty of worshiping an idol, essentially. That's the way Numbers 15 describes it, when it's making this distinction between unintentional or ignorant sins and deliberate ones. You guys with me so far? Can you give me a head nod? Okay. So what he's alluding to in the Hebrews is this distinction. And to sin deliberately would be defiantly disobeying God. I think we can go even further. I think here he's not talking about just any random sin pattern that maybe you keep falling into over and over again and you're maybe guilty of this sinning deliberately. I don't want to minimize falling into the same sins over and over again, right, as if that's not a big deal. But I don't think that's really what he's got in mind here. I think verse 29 tells us what he has in mind here. What it would be to sin deliberately and be guilty of this defiant blasphemy, this, this claim about who God really is, is summarized in verse 29. It's to spurn the Son of God, or some translation have to trample on Jesus. It's to profane the blood of the covenant, or to, to treat it, to despise it, to treat it as if it's worthless, as if it's no, no more than just water, to outrage or insult the Spirit of God. That's what he means. Verse 29 defines what it is to sin deliberately. It's to make a statement about what God has offered you. Freedom through Jesus, the blood of the covenant that welcomes you and gives you a new relationship with him, and the spirit that's been given to change you and make you new. It's to reject those things. Because rejecting those things that God offers you, just like Numbers 15 says about the law, is to blaspheme him, to make a statement about him to claim he either can't deliver or his solution is just not up to the problem. I think that, that, that this is what our author is getting at becomes even clearer in verses 28 and 29 where he sets up this, this contrast. You know this was true about the law of Moses. How much more will this be true about Jesus? So let me explain what those two verses do and then I'm going to wrap it up for us and try to make it, uh, make it a little more coherent. Verses 28 and 29 clarify why making a, a, by blaspheming God, by rejecting him and saying he can't deliver when he claims that he can, by not taking what's offered to you in Jesus, why making that statement about God is such a big deal. Again, he refers back to the Old Testament. He says, he says in verse 28, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What's that about? It's another, basically a quote from the Old Testament, this time from Deuteronomy, another another part of the law of Moses. And in this section of Deuteronomy, what, what Moses says, or God through Moses, is that to, to set aside the law of Moses, to know what's in it, and to decide you're not going to do it, is to be guilty of worshiping other gods. It's, it's the same thing as idolatry. Can you see why that would be the case? In the law we have God saying, if you do these things, I will bless you. This is how to flourish as a human. Follow these precepts, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Trust me. He's not, it's not even, first and foremost, a, a standard of performance that they have to meet. It's a, it's a call for them to trust in him, that he knows what's best for them, and asking them, just do these things. And I, it, it, believe me, it's going to work out. Trust me. And by rejecting the law, they're rejecting God. They're trading him in for other options that they think will be more secure. That's why Deuteronomy calls it idolatry. To set aside the law of Moses is to be guilty of a punishment or, or guilty of, a, of an offense that, means, that, that needs death because it is to, to worship a false god. And then he says in verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think? 
should come on those who set aside not the law of Moses, but Jesus, the Son of God, the blood that the Son of God shed for them, the Spirit that was given to quicken them and give them life. How much worse do you think the punishment will be for them? What he's arguing here, I think, is that it makes a much more insulting statement about the quality of God to reject what he's given us in Jesus and in his spirit than it did to reject the law that he gave. The Israelites knew him as creator. They knew him as the one who had delivered them from Egypt, as the one who now has given them this law. So to reject that was a, a slander on God's name. But for those of us who know him as not just creator and lawgiver, but as the one who has shed the blood of his own son for us and has sent his own spirit to dwell in us. For, us, for those of us who know that level of what he's provided us and reject him still, how much worse a statement is that about him? How much more insulting and slanderous and therefore how much more worthy of judgment? I'm going to give you an analogy that's not perfect, but I think gets us part of the way there. Uh, a week or so ago, um, our friends uh, Will and Christy French sent us out on a date, gave us some free child care. Lindsay and I went to this amazing restaurant called the Yellow Porch. And while we were there, there were some menu items that we did not understand, right? There were some things on there that we'd never tried, uh, some descriptions of items that didn't immediately connect with us, so we asked for clarification. Well, and we're making one kind of statement to that chef if we see a menu item we don't necessarily understand it, and we have it clarified for us, but the description of it just doesn't really sound that good to us. You know, it has, it has ingredients maybe that we're just not crazy about or the, the particular combination of ingredients seems disgusting or something like that. It's just not our taste, our style, and we, and we don't order it. Well, that's a kind of insult to the chef, right? It's saying we don't trust you to be able to pull off that thing. We doubt you. Right? And your ability. You're claiming that we'll like it, but we don't trust you, so we're not going to order it. That's one kind of insult. It's, right? But imagine how much worse the insult if we had ordered it, if we had tasted it, and if then we had rejected it. Because then we would be saying not that we were too skittish to try something, which is subjective and says as much about us as it does about the food. We would be saying that we, from experience, know that this food is not as good as the chef claims it to be. We would be making an insult to that chef that is far greater than if we had just not ever ordered it. I think what he's setting up here is a contrast between, between what was known only like reading off of a menu in the Old Testament compared to the taste that is given to those who know Jesus. And then to reject Jesus after having tasted him and known his fullness would be so much greater a blasphemy of God than what, they were, than what required death under the law of Moses. And how, that all he's got is how much worse must judgment be for someone who's guilty of this. Surely it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of Almighty God. I think that's the nature of the warning. To sum it back up, what God offers you, the law in the Old Testament, Jesus and his spirit in the new, to reject that is really to reject God because it's to say that he can't deliver what he claims to deliver or that what he's offered us isn't worthy of our acceptance. And that statement about God must be punished. No two ways about it. God 
has made it clear in his word that he is remaking the world. And that in the new heavens and the new earth, everything that has breath will testify truly to his power as creator and as redeemer. There will be no, not one stray word or syllable or even leaf or, or flower that will not testify truly to him in that world. There is no room for a statement like the one that will be made by those who reject Jesus. To put it in the words of verse 26, to reject Jesus is to take yourself into a place where there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If this letter has made any point so far, it's that Jesus is the only one who can really account for what we need to be holy before God. Apart from his sacrifice, there isn't a sacrifice. To reject him, then, is to reject your only hope. So who's the warning for? I think that is probably the question that we most come to this text with. It's not a question that this text answers for us. But it's the one we all want answered. Can I be guilty of what this text warns against? Another way to put it might be, can Christians, people who have truly owned the name of Jesus and tasted of the Spirit and been converted, who are really genuine Christians, can they be guilty of what's warned against here? Now, there are, this is extremely controversial. Um, it's certainly the most controversial part of the warnings that are all through Hebrews. And I, I think we'd be remiss to just skirt past this text, even though it doesn't address this question directly, without at least raising it and trying to get some clarity on it. So I want to do that briefly. I want to follow up with you after, if you still have questions, and I want to refer you to a sermon earlier in our Hebrew series on Hebrews 6, is a warning almost exactly like this one, where the whole sermon was just on the warning as opposed to what we're trying to do today. So I'm going to recap some of that stuff here, but there's a lot more online if you want to listen to that later. I think when we raise the question, can we be guilty of this, what we want to know, what we're really asking is, what is possible? What is possible? Is it possible for a truly converted person, a genuine Christian, to fall away from Jesus and lose salvation? Some say yes. Others say no, and both of these groups have a way of getting at this text that fits their system and the questions that they're asking. But this text, just like Hebrews 6, is not about what's possible. Let me say that again. This text, just like Hebrews 6, is not about what's possible, whether it's possible for a person who's truly converted to fall away or not. I believe there are passages that address this question about what's possible, and I think those passages that address this question about what's possible, is it possible for somebody to fall away, answer consistently and clearly that it isn't possible for someone to truly be a, 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 one who has tasted of the Spirit and sanctified by it and then fall away. Because what God begins, God carries to completion, and salvation is his work and his alone. And if you want a good case for this, just read Romans from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 8, and I think you'll come away convinced. This warning, however, in Hebrews, is not about what might happen or could happen. It's not about what's possible. It's about what would happen. It's about what would happen, certainly, if someone left Jesus. See, the truthfulness of a warning like this one isn't tied to whether or not it could actually happen. The truthfulness of a warning like this is based on what would happen, on the certain consequence of somebody taking action. 
These warnings are about what's conceivable, and what they're designed for is to ensure that what's conceivable doesn't happen. These warnings are a means to an end, in other words. The question of whether it's possible for a person to lose their salvation is an important one that other texts deliver. This one just says, if having been converted, you were to abandon Jesus and and leave your faith behind, there's no hope for you. You will be judged. Here's an analogy that I used on Hebrews 6. I'm going to bring it back up again because it, it helps me anyway to see how a warning could be true even if the thing it's warning against couldn't really happen, isn't really possible. How the warning could still be true and still be useful to us as a means to keeping us from falling away from Jesus. Here's the analogy. You know when you buy a new pair of shoes, maybe it's only leather shoes, I, I don't remember. They, they come with these little packets inside the box that have something to do with moisture. Um, I don't know what the, uh, what the actual element is in there. Some of our chemists could tell us. Silicone is what's in there. Uh, so it comes with these, these silicone packets, and they usually have, like, warning, do not eat, skull and crossbones, you know, things circled with lines through them. This is poison. It will hurt you or, or, or whatever, maybe kill you. I don't know how serious it is. Now, it is highly unlikely, and I think we could even say it's, it's a practical certainty that I am not going to eat one of those packets, whether it has anything written on it or not. I mean, you don't, who opens a box of shoes and pops that thing into their mouth? I mean, who does that? But the warning is still true, right? The warning is still true because if I were to eat it, I would get sick, maybe die. And the warning still serves a purpose because even though it's a practical certainty that I wasn't going to eat it anyway, once I've seen the skull and crossbones, there's no chance I'm going to eat it, right? So the warning reinforces the fact it's a means to an end reinforces the fact that I'm not going to eat the poison. I think these passages are meant in the same way. God is the one who holds us to himself, and Jesus has promised that once we are his, there is nothing that can snatch us out of his hand, and that means there's no losing the salvation God has given to us and works out in us. It's his work and not ours. But God uses means to accomplish the things that he's working on. And one of the means that he uses to keep us close to himself and keep us from falling away is warnings like this one that speak truth. If we were to abandon Jesus, we will get what all enemies of God will get. We will get judgment once and for all. And there is no sacrifice for sins. So don't do it. Don't abandon him. Hold on. That's who the warning's for. It's for all of us. We need to hear it, connect with it, and embrace it. The last thing I want to the last thing I want to answer, and this is this much more carefully and quickly, or much more quickly rather, is what are these for? How are we supposed to use these warnings it, practically? How are we supposed to connect with them? Because what we've been looking at through Hebrews mostly are these rich, incredible promises about what God has done for us in Jesus. And this seems like a hard right turn, doesn't it? To go from all this talk of promise to these harsh warnings. But the promises we've been savoring actually go hand in hand with these warnings. Here's the way, my favorite way of capturing this quickly is from John Piper. He says this, the point of the promises, which is mostly what we've been talking about, that's to engage our affections for the eternal glory of God. The promises kindle in us a love for God and who he is and what he's done for us. The point of the warnings is to disengage our affections from the things of this world from what he calls, what Piper calls, the perishing glory of this world. These warnings, in other words, are not meant to make us introspective and insecure. 
just, just to have us curl up emotionally into the fetal position, wondering whether we've been guilty of what's talked about here, whether it's too late for us. That's not the point. The point is to wake us up, to shake us to seeing that God is not just a God of great and wonderful mercy, but a God of power and holiness who can't tolerate any false testimony to him, who will judge all who oppose him. And if we find ourselves in that camp, we have judgment waiting for us. That's the point of these warnings, to disengage our hearts from what could lead us to judgment. Now, I'm aware deeply and personally that the judgment of God is something that seems distant to us and primitive, that the idea of falling into God's hands seems probably less fearful to us than it does odd and strange, primitive and outdated to us. It's hard to imagine our culture producing works like Dante's Inferno or, or Milton's Paradise Lost, these, these works of culture and art that, are, that are, have hung over them like a cloud, the prospect of death and judgment. We just don't think about those things, probably because death is so far removed from our experience most of the time. What we need are warnings like this to jar us awake, to remind us that apart from Jesus we have no hope, that death is coming, and that it is a horrible thing to fall into the hands of Almighty God without Jesus' blood covering us. I know that can be a tough pill to swallow, that may, in fact, be one of the fact that the Bible talks about God this way may be one of the things that has kept you from committing to Jesus so far. What I want to say to you is that I think you have inside of yourself a testimony that's true to the fact that you expect this kind of judgment for others who do you wrong or for others who are famously unjust and have no, seem, seem to have no accountability for their abuse of their power and their preying on the weak. I think every time you watch a movie that, like the Schindler's List or something like that, where, where you see injustice vividly pictured, you want judgment. And I think that that sense in you speaks truth. And what you may not have ever connected with is that the same thing that you want to see others judge for is something you're guilty of. That the God who created you with this sense, this urge and longing for justice is the same God who has every right to expect the same from you and that you haven't delivered it. You just haven't delivered it. But what God invites us to is to join the chorus of those who sing his praises rightly now before it's too late. Don't trample on that offer. Don't dismiss the blood of Jesus as if it's no more than tepid water. The judgment that's foreshadowed here is true but it's what makes Jesus so precious to us. If you're a skeptic this morning and you're comfortable in your agnosticism, saying simply that you, you don't really know what to do with this God or any other, I need you to know today, please hear this, friends, that there is no such thing as withholding a judgment or a statement about God. Even in your limbo, you are making a statement about him. That means life or death. You are either claiming the promises that Jesus is everything you need and therefore glorifying him, or you are, with, by, with, by just withholding, by, by trying to sit on the sidelines, you are saying you don't think he can deliver. He's not worth trusting. And that's a false statement that will be exposed. Please come to him now before it's too late.
the last few minutes, I want to much, much more quickly point you to something I'll leave you on your own to really savor this morning. The shape of endurance. You can do this so much more quickly because we've seen it so much more often in Hebrews. And we're about to be, we're set up now for a whole chapter of looking at, that, that looks at faith. All of chapter 11 in Hebrews gives us a case for what faith looks like. The kind of faith that endures and holds on even when the world is messed up and, and even, when, even when the brokenness of the world is infringing on you and your comfort and your peace and security. What does faith look like in the real world in which we live? That's what chapter 11 is about. But I want to point us there by just briefly tasting of the rest of this chapter. Verse, beginning of verse 32 through verse 39, we get a call to faith. It's a call that begins with a reminder of the the faith that these friends had shown in the past. Look at how he describes their faith in verse 32 and 33 and 34. And think about this description in light of the things we want most and how they were giving them up. They were exposed publicly to shame and reproach. How much of what we do do we do because of the reputation we want to build in the eyes of other people? How much do we crave an image of ourselves that others buy into. They were giving it all up and subjecting themselves openly to shame and reproach. They were identifying with those who were in prison. And what that means is not just that they were visiting those who were in prison, but that they were visiting their friends who were in prison because of Jesus. And, and by identifying with them, they were putting themselves on the line as potential, uh, for potential arrest and imprisonment. They were, in other words, subjecting themselves to insecurity, to a lack of of peace to the, the other thing that drives so much of what we do. Then verse 34 says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, the stuff, the material possessions that drives us so often, that, that, that determines so much of our decisions and our values. That, they were just getting rid of it. They didn't care. Who does this? It's so unnatural. I've been seeing this Comcast commercial recently for this new Xfinity home security product and like you on your ipad and your iphone you can have like multiple camera views of your home you can control what alarms are set and and at what intensity and who has access and you can control all that on the go so you can always know that your stuff your home your peace your security is not being threatened we go to those links we develop those products and buy them because we crave and cling to the things that these guys were throwing away as if they were nothing and throwing them away with joy now how in the world can you do that you can do it because you believe that you own a possession that's permanent that's abiding that's untouchable and that's completely unaffected by the loss of everything that natural people hold dear. That's how you do it. That's what verse 34 says. They had a confidence that they had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw it away. It has great reward. Verse 36 sums it up. You have need of endurance. You need to hold on as you've been holding on so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What he means, the will of God that he's talking about there is that you have got to hold on to me even when the rest of your world is falling apart because, and here's where it comes back around full circle, when you hold on to me when everything else that you value is falling apart, 
are stripped away from you, and when you hold on to me with joy in the midst of those circumstances, then you make a testimony to me, a statement about who I am and what I am worth. That is the exact opposite of the statement made by those who reject God's law or trample on his son or insult his spirit. What they say is that God is not trustworthy, that he is not to be valued on par with what the gods of this world offer. What you, what you make, what the statement that you make about God, when you hold on to him, when you claim his gospel, when everything else falls away, is that God alone is worth living for, that in him is life and life eternal, that what he offers by offering himself, what he offers by giving us a priest who brings us into his presence where there is fullness of joy forever, what he offers is a possession that's permanent, that's abiding, that isn't going anywhere, that no moth, no amount of rust, can destroy, that no thief can break in and steal. It is yours once and for all because it's held for you by Jesus. And when you claim that, then you testify to the glory of God. That's the calling of faith. And that's what Hebrews 11 is going to help us connect with. That's where we're headed. Let's pray that God will take us there and help us to see. Oh, Father, thank you for this abiding possession. Help us to claim it in faith. We know from experience that our hearts are still divided, that we're torn by what you offer us on one side and what our old beloved gods offer us on the other side. And we want hearts that are united and true, hearts that are pure, hearts that testify to your value, to your supremacy, to your satisfying goodness. Would you give us these hearts by your spirit? For Jesus' sake, amen.